Hello, I'm Philippa Moore and welcome to another episode of Bookends, the podcast for writers and book lovers. This is episode 11. Yes, we are well and truly in double digits now, listeners. And I'm so excited about this episode's guest. Um, This is a rather momentous episode. I think it would be fair to say that the reason I started this podcast in the first place is because of the guest you will meet in this episode. I'm talking, of course, about Ramona Koval, one of Australia's most respected literary journalists and broadcasters who hosted the now-departed book show on ABC Radio National for many years. Known for her fascinating in-depth interviews with writers, Ramona is known throughout Australia and the world for her love and knowledge of books and literature. She has been a guest interviewer at international literary festivals. She has written for The Age and The Weekend Australian, and she's also editor of the Best Australian Essays collections, and also now the host of the Monthly's online book club. Having spent so much of her career talking to other writers about their work, I think it's safe to say it's now Ramona's turn to talk about hers. She's written a novel, collections of interviews and even a cookbook, but these days she's mostly writing non-fiction and her most recent book is By the Book, A Reader's Guide to Life, which is a wonderful journey through her life as a reader and book lover. Part memoir, part literary and social history and written with Ramona's trademark warmth, it's about how the books we read often teach us really important life lessons and how they shape our lives, our characters, and even occasionally our destinies. I spoke to Ramona Koval in Melbourne in June 2013, and we begin by talking about life for her now on the other side of the microphone. Since I published this book, which was in October 2012, I've been on the road with it, as it were, <laughs> and talking about it to lots of people. And um, it's a, actually a great pleasure to be interviewed because, as you know, it's much harder to interview someone than to be interviewed yourself. And um, it's, you know, it's hard to read someone's work and work out what you think of it and work out how you'll approach the person and what they're going to be like and you know, what to start with and where to go with it and uh, to try and get something original out of it or, or not bore the person to death because you're asking the same questions that other people have. It's really hard work. Um, and often I was doing it in front of huge audiences as well. So it's sort of hard work plus a, a bit risky yeah. because, you know, if, if the audience was there to see their favourite writer and if the favourite writer was a little bit less open or cooperative than they could have been you might have had to try some you know more sort of arm wrestling kind of <laughs> techniques in front of people who were expecting something else so no I'm um I'm getting used to it and um, I, I, I'm very happy to be talking to people about my work I mean I've talked to a lot of people about other people's work for a long long time so um, I feel like um you know it's it's perhaps my time to talk about my work. Mm. It must make a nice change for you, really. A lot of the guests who come on this program, I talk to them about their writing process and their journey as as a writer. Uh, I'm very keen to talk to you about that, obviously. But 
what's really interesting about you is that you've had a really long journey as a reader as your book by the book goes into quite a bit of detail about so for people who've maybe just picked up the book and haven't read it yet um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about about by the book and what inspired you to write it well when I stopped being a journalist about you know nearly two years ago now I had an idea for a book. I mean, I've published books over the years since about 1984. Um, actually, my first book was called Eating Your Heart Out, Food Shape in the Body Industry, published by Penguin. And it was about a lot of the things that you've been interested in talking about uh, uh, when you, you, know, you talk about health and weight and, and food and um, all of that, which was my first sort of non-fiction book coming out of being a science journalist. Um, but I've written other kinds of books. I've written a novel, I've written you know, collections of interviews and a cookbook. And, but this was going to be the first time that I had a lot of time to really devote myself to my work. And I had a proposal for a book, which is actually the one that I'm writing over there in the oh, corner. Right. Oh, um, so I went to say, look, what about this? And I, I'd read, you know, I'd sent them a lot of work that I'd already done for quite a long time. And they were very happy and they said... Um, we're going to give you a contract for this book, but we'd like you to write another book beforehand. Maybe by the end of you know next year you could publish this one. We want you to do a book about reading, since you've been doing a lot of reading for the last 25 years. You probably know a bit about reading. And I thought, what good idea. And then I went home and I looked around me, I looked at all the books around me, and I thought, why are you here? What are you here for? Why have I still got you after some of them I'd had since I was a kid or some of them I'd actually gone out and bought because I remembered a book that I'd had as a kid that I didn't have anymore and I had tried to find a replacement you know which I'd had done and some of them were books that had made it through the office when I'd done an interview with their their um, authors and then but I hadn't finished with them so even though I was never going to use them again I thought well I might need that book and you know what are all these books about polar exploration about and what are all these classics about and I looked around them and I thought actually they tell a story and they actually tell a story about the reasons why they were, were things that I, I felt connected with and they often were associated with times in my life that this particular book came along and I'd sort of fall on it fall into it and sort of fall upon a sentence or um, an idea and, and that, that would really mean something to me and I would hold it to myself and then carry it around like that for years so it became a I thought I'd started off as a book about a book of um, essays on reading different kinds of things but it ended up to be a kind of archaeology of the self a kind of memoir um, and um, and that's really sort of how it how it came into being yes we, we find out a lot about you and your childhood and your uh, and the books that meant something to you growing up and the ones that you've discovered and rediscovered. It sounds like you were always a voracious reader. Do you remember a time when books weren't a big part of your life? No, I, I think, look, I was always a voracious reader because I recognised early that books could take you out of your life, that they could transport you to another time and a place, to another family, to another country... Um, and you could live many lives, not just the one you had. I mean, I was mesmerised by books. And, and because my family wasn't a, a big on communication, I, I kind of 
got the idea that I would learn a lot about the world through books. And uh, they, they became my um, touchstones, my stepping stones to, uh, to what the world was like. There's a very interesting episode you relate in the book. Um, there was a, a mobile library that used to come around the suburb of Melbourne where you grew up. And uh, one of Kafka's? The Trial. The Trial. And you were only very young, but somehow persuaded the librarian to let you borrow it. And was, that was a turning point in your reading life. Well, that was, that was the point at which I got to borrow grown-up books from the library. Because I was under 12, um, you could only borrow from the children's section. So I remember sort of lying on the floor of the mobile library. In my mind's eye, it was lino on the floor. I don't know whether that's true or not, but it, it feels like it was lino, it was cool, because lino's like that. And you, I'm lying on the floor and I'm kind of looking at all these kids' books thinking, they're really boring, I'm really, I'm really not interested in talking animals. You're ready to move on. I'm ready to move on. <laughs> and then I notice that the adult section is just where I'm lying and the Ks are down the bottom. So Kafka, uh, Katzenzakis, Kerstler and all the Ks. And I thought, I saw this little book. I thought, what's that little book doing in the grown-up section? For some reason I thought... That would be that. What's that doing? It must be a children's book that's made its way in because it's so thin. Mm. It's so little. Grown up books are Grown big up, books. Exactly. <laughs> so I pulled it off the shelf and I realised I sort of had it in my hands. I thought I opened up the first page and I think you know I could read it. It was about this guy who was um, just disturbed by people knocking on his doors and people are coming to arrest him. He's done something wrong and he doesn't really know what it is and. I thought, oh, I can, I can read this. So I asked the librarian if I could borrow it, and he said, oh, that, that's for adults and you're a child. And I said, I've read all the ones for children, I lied. And, <laughs> and he said, well, okay, you can borrow this one. So I did. And like a lot of people, a kind librarian, a wonderful teacher, a neighbour, or someone who sort of takes a child seriously mm. and says, well, well you know, I might, they might be interested or they might be ready for something like that. Mm. So I took it away and I read it and I, I didn't get it, obviously, not, not all of it. I didn't understand what, what it was, you know, being you know, the political aspects of it. But I think as a child I knew what it was like to be accused of something that you hadn't done mm. or, you know, that you didn't know why you'd done something wrong, what, what was wrong about the thing that you'd done. I mean, a lot of childhood is like that. Mm. So that was my sort of first step into this sort of middle European, slightly absurdist, Kafka-esque groups of, of books that I always sort of found myself drawn to after that. Mm. And perhaps was it the first time you perhaps realised that um, books could help you make sense of the world? You weren't alone in feeling like being accused of something you hadn't <laughs> done or, or all the rest That's of it. That's right, absolutely. Mm. Yes, I, um, I realised that there were lessons to be learned. Mm. as well as beautiful stories and to lose oneself. Mm. Reading was uh, a lovely way for you to connect with your mother while you were growing up because she was a, a very keen reader as well. Are you happy to tell the listeners a bit about her? Sure. Um, my mother was a Holocaust survivor. She was a 17 when the war finished, so she was on her own in Warsaw from when she was 14. And um, because she was um, from an Orthodox family in the countryside, she had, um, you know, had, didn't know very much about 
Polish society, but she was surviving by having false Aryan papers. And because she was fair and blue-eyed, she was the only one of her family who was going to get away with it. But she um, was a good linguist, she had a good ear. So she started off learning Yiddish in, in her home little town. But then when she went to school first, she learned Polish. But then by the time the war broke out, she was pretending to be a Polish Catholic girl in Warsaw. So her Polish had to be really perfect. And then after the war, she and my father um, went to Paris for five years, four years. And they worked as outworkers in a, a, for a factory. That she, that's how she learned French, was by reading. But she was a sort of autodidact, I guess, and she was reading Simone de Beauvoir, and she was reading Guy de Maupassant short stories. And then when she came to Australia, reading again, because there weren't any classes that they were doing, they were factory workers. So she started to read... Uh, in English, but by the time I was really quite conscious of what she was reading, she would leave her books, not, she wouldn't give them to me and she wouldn't ever talk to me about them, which is odd. She would leave them around and I would pick them up and read them. So she was reading, um, you know, the feminists from the 60s. She, she'd already read um, uh, Simone de Beauvoir in French already in the late 40s, but she, she read the translations. She read some of the um, American feminists of the 60s. She liked reading banned books or banned books that had been recently or formerly banned in Australia. So she was reading Portnoy's Complaint and Lady Chatterley's Lover and um, Ulysses, amazingly. How does that ban? I don't, I don't understand. I don't know. How did people read it far enough to, to have to ban it? I know. Well, somebody did. And somebody <laughs> decided. I could never work out what was, you know, what was the, the rude bit in it because when I was at that age, I had no idea. I had no experience. I was very innocent. I mean, that was the thing. I was very innocent because my mother really watched over me like a hawk and I wasn't allowed to go out very much. But I was allowed to read anything I wanted. Mm. So, Which is interesting because, if anything, a book is a... A very private experience and you make this point very well in by the book because when someone is reading a book you can't control their thoughts and you can't control their experience so it's very interesting that she allowed you that portal of knowledge well that's as it right were. she wanted me to learn about the world but what she had to teach me was probably too upsetting and too devastating mm. as she was the only survivor of her family so in a way she allowed the books to take over in a sense mm. to to teach me various things I mean she was um she was quite subtle really because when, when I'd read the communist manifesto when I was about 14 and I thought oh that was a good idea workers of the world unite there's nothing to lose but your church well I thought that was a really good idea and I would be a communist and so I decided to learn Russian and uh, so I learned you know I went to Russian classes for over six months when I was 14 on a Saturday morning now, she could speak Russian, and nobody ever helped me with my Russian homework. So now I'm a grown-up, I think, why wouldn't you? I mean, what's going on that she wouldn't help me with my Russian homework? But it was 1968, the tanks were going into Prague, and she began to read and then leave for me um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn's The Gulag Archipelago and One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, which were arguments against the Soviet Union, really. Mm. And um, she sort of shaped my view of things by weighing a different view to the Communist Manifesto, which was 19th century theory compared to the 20th century experience. 
And didn't you have this uh, rather grand idea that your Russian teacher and you were going to become revolutionaries That's or something? It. I did. I thought, <laughs> look, she'll know, she'll know that I'm, On the I've review. read the Communist Manifesto, <laughs> for example, I'm really the full bottle on being a revolutionary. <laughs> so I was expecting she would pluck me out of the class. I can't even remember who was actually in the class. Must must be other kids from all over the, the city learning this. Well, learning I was just going to say, I would imagine you'd be the youngest one there. I probably was the youngest one there, but it was, I don't know who was running the classes. I don't even know whether they were official education department classes or just, you know, a group of Russian people who'd hired a hide the room but so I gave it up after about six months or eight months because I thought she's of my Russian teacher's obviously not going to no. make any moves here <laughs> <laughs> so I would have to you know put my fervent views on the on on hold for a while I tried to teach myself Russian at about the same age because I got really um swept up in learning about um Russian history at mm. school and I borrowed a um a language course on tape from the Glenorchy Library in Hobart and so I would sit in my room and try and teach myself Russian and then I'd get Barbie dolls out and act out a soap <laughs> opera in Russian. But it's very hard was, to, you know, act out a soap opera with such limited It was very limited vocabulary. So basically I would listen to some conversations that they'd have on there, like there was a wedding reception in, in on mm. the tape and it was just the mother-in-law talking to the groom. And so I'd just learn that off by heart, because I was a childhood actress. Mm. I'd learn that, and then I'd have them act it out. And I'd watch, <laughs> oh, I just thought I was great. But, <laughs> but no, there's a similar experience we've got in common. I really liked, uh, there's a lovely episode in um, By the Book where you describe your mother going to a bookshop to get you a book, and the bookseller raised his eyebrows a little bit. Um, maybe tell the, the listeners what book that was. Well, I, I saw a book. It must have been on television. I saw some sort of sketch comedy thing, I think, <laughs> talking about, you know, um, this book, which everyone was sort of trying to get their hands on. It was called the Kama Sutra. And I didn't know what it was, but I wrote it down. And, and my mother said to me, well, I'm going to the city. Um, would you like something? Would you need, do you need anything? And I said, well, I'd like to, a book called the Kama Sutra. Could you get it for me? So I wrote it out and she wrote it out and we sent it off. And then when I got home from school that day, my mother was very flustered and she <laughs> wanted to know how much I knew about what this book, this Kama Sutra was, because it was, uh, you know, an ancient Indian sex manual, really. <laughs> and so my mother had told me how embarrassed she'd been because she'd gone to this um, bookshop and she said, I'd like this book for my daughter. And she handed over this book, you know, the, the name, the Kama Sutra. And the man looked at it and said, how old is your daughter? And she said, oh, she's 12. And, and <laughs> she said, well, I don't know if it's suitable for your daughter. And, and my mother, you know, of course, the, the reader of banned books was not going to be assuaged um, by no. somebody's view about what she should be buying. So she bought it. But she opened it up in the tram on the way home to sort of see what this was. And she said that the bloke across from her was very sort of interested, alarmed, at surprised. <laughs> and as she read it, she realised what it was. And when she worked out that I didn't have any idea about it, she just sort of gave it to me and said, all right, well, make of this what you will. It wasn't the illustrated Kama no, Sutra. No, no, it wasn't illustrated. It wasn't illustrated at all. So it was hard to imagine what on earth they were talking about. Yes. There's a lot of talk about 
herbal things. Herbal remedies. Herbal remedies. For being devastating. (laughs) You know, sort of the camel bones being crushed up with various other herbs and it would make you irresistible. (laughs) Or um, something else that was mixed up with dog's dung or the dung of a donkey or something and thrown over a woman would make her his slave. So I thought... I'd have to watch out for that sort of thing happening. But I had no idea whether this was sort of current information or <laughs> what it was because I wasn't allowed to go out. So yeah, you're a bit sheltered. I was from very the world. sheltered. Yeah. So I thought, gee, I'm going to have to watch out for this. And where will I find camel bones? In Melbourne. <laughs> in Melbourne in the 60s. That's right. Who knows? You talk a bit about the right moment to read a book in By the Book you relate finding a book that was actually published in the 60s um, and then was reprinted in 2012. And you you talk a little bit about how maybe if you'd read that book at the time or when you were younger, maybe it would have set you on a different path or helped you to make different decisions. Um, do you think there ever is a right time or a right moment to read a book? Or do well, they come along they at come, the right look, time? You know, sometimes you can read something and it won't mean the same thing to you. But if you read it again in 10 years, something about your life or your experience or your views of the world will have changed and suddenly it'll mean something to you. It'll mean more than it had before. Mm. Although, you know, my other advice is to never, you know, don't don't bang your head against a brick wall with a book that you feel as if you're not really getting into. Mm. You might, and you know, putting it aside, if other people say to you, a book's fantastic and it's really been marvellous for them, and if you try and you think, well, I don't know what they're talking about, um, you might just leave that aside for another five or ten years and try it again. Like what I've done with Ulysses, basically. <laughs> <laughs> I've never been able to get well, into it. Well, I didn't read it properly until I had to do a show about it. And even then I could see that, look, there were some bits that were wonderful, like Molly Bloom's soliloquy, where she sort of sort of basically having an orgasm on the page and we're fat you know it's fantastic but and then other sort of bits of mucking around with language and playing around with I just thought well yeah I could give or take that and I could see how it was experimental and probably for the time it was quite amazing and um but still you know I don't know how my mother read it or what she got out of it Hmm. reading in her fourth or fifth language I think that I've got a very eclectic group of interests. Um, And basically, if I hadn't read anything like that before, or if I hadn't read anything about that subject before, um, or if I'd loved the author's work before and I wanted to read again, I mean, there are a few few reasons why you pick up a book. And um, that was all I really needed. Often just, you know, do I know anything about this subject? And if I didn't, was you know if it was a good enough book if it was well enough written it would just be a great pleasure hmm. are there any books that you have read over and over no i haven't had the chance to do that i mean i read all the books that i i reread all the books that i wrote about when i wrote this book but i was always on such a sort of treadmill of dailiness and weekliness and you know getting that one done and then doing the interview and doing the next one and doing the next one but I couldn't go back to books. No. Didn't really have the luxury no, of didn't time. Have the time. But that leads on nicely to my next question, which is, um, you know, while you were the presenter of the book show on ABC Radio National for many years, I'm sure one of the great pleasures, but also one of the great um, 
headaches perhaps, it was the constant trolley of books coming your way. Did that change your reading style at all? Did you have to become a bit of a speed reader? Look, I always read every word, but I began to read them fast. Mm. And uh, that was the rule that I made that was that you know if I was only reading what I wanted to read, that just meant that you know I um, I was engrossed in it because I I would have looked at it and thought oh the writing's really interesting and the subject's really interesting I will enjoy this, mm. and then I enjoyed it. Mm. Um, but you know, reading with a pen in your hand, as you know, I can see that you've made all those notes. Yes, too. yes, I have. It's a different thing than reading just for pleasure. Mm. Just lying back and thinking, I'm on holiday and I'm just going to read this book and I'm just losing myself for some hours. Because you know that you're going to have to account for this, you know. Yes, you, you wrote in here that um, for a while while you were on holiday you only read dead writers, so there was no possibility that you'd have to interview them That's in the right. near future. Because I found if I didn't, every time I'd sort of read something of an alive writer, I'd think, oh... Well, now I've read it, I may as well interview them, you know. And, um, and I'll be back at work again soon and I might you know, need to have a few things in the can. So you were never off, basically. No, I don't think I was ever off, that's right. And that's where, then I started to read the ancients, you know, the um, Ovid's poetry or, or Suetonius's Twelve Caesars or all the things that I thought were part of a good literary education or historical education, which I hadn't had because I did science. So um, that was my, what I did on holidays. But it's always self-improving, mm. you know. <laughs> that's the sort of bottom line. So and not very restful. Well, that's really interesting. That's another thing I wanted to bring up with you, was how you, you do write a little bit in By the Book about how reading is part of self-improvement for you. What exactly do you mean by that? Do you mean knowledge? I mean knowledge. I mean... Um, not just knowledge like, okay, well, now I know all about whales or now I know all about sand or I know about um, the origin of the universe. or, But more like I know about certain periods of history that I didn't know anything about. You know, there's I'm reading a novel about Clara Schumann, which was written by Janice Galloway. Galloway, I think her name is. And sort of put put me into that world of the piano players and the composers of the time, and I felt that I knew much more about music than I did before when I read it. You know, even though, I mean, I'd done piano lessons and violin lessons for a little while, but the real world of music and the sort of being taken away by the composing and by the by the romance and by the technique and you know the work of being a, a pianist and working on it. And, you know, a novel can give you that too. It's not just non-fiction that can give you that. So when I say self-improving, I mean in all senses, you know, a, a more empathetic, sympathetic, nuanced view of the world. Mm. And that's what books can give you. Mm. I mean, they're a very, very fast way of saying, this is everything I know about reading, and then I'm giving it to you through that, through that book, and now you've read it, so you know all the things I know now. Um, it's a bit scary, and it's pretty isn't it? good, isn't it's it? Pretty, I mean, pretty good, it's pretty yeah. efficient. Mm. I really love your writing style because it, it really did feel like we were just having a chat about your favourite books. Mm. Because you even address the reader quite a few times, like when you recall like some some rather painful stuff. You say, "Look, I'm not even going to Google this image. Not even for you." Mm. And it's like, ah. So I, I did feel it was a it was a, it's a very intimately written book. I think this is probably because of years and years of being a broadcaster, mm. and the idea of connecting with people through the voice. 
connecting with people's interests and, you know, from my mouth to their ear is a very intimate connection and people turning on the radio every day and hearing you at a certain time is a, is a friendship that, that builds up. Mm. And so I learned, I suppose, how to address the people who were there every day. And then, you know, because you are familiar and people wrote to you and people responded and rang and, and there was a sort of, you know, there was a conversation happening. Mm. So I think for this book at least, that conversation is a continuation of that sort of relationship. Mm. Well, hence why I was so devastated when the book show ended. Well, a lot of people were, and I was a bit too. Yeah. But I think that I could only do what I was doing if I had complete control yeah. over what I read and how I read it and what was in the show. Mm. And um, I think that um, when it looked like you know there was a, a new management that didn't have the same idea... Then I just thought, well, you know, I mean, I you know, we worked at the ABC for a long time and had seen people come and go and had, you know, survived quite a few regimes. Sounds like the Eastern Europe, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was a say, bit like that. Your communist leanings that's are coming right, out again. That's right. <laughs> and, um, and I thought, you know what, I don't think I want to hang about and wait until this one goes too, yeah. which it will eventually. And so I decided that this might be time to... Um, take my bat and ball and go home, mm. which I did. And then by the book came out in October and it's been selling really well and it'll be published in the UK and in the USA in November this year. Oh, fantastic. So it's got a life of its own. I'm you know, getting on with writing this book over there in the corner and I'm talk, you know, talking still about writing and reading and doing a little bit of literary journalism at the monthly the magazine, the monthly magazine, um, on their website at um, themonthly.com.au, a book club, a sort of a monthly book club where I choose a, a book and I interview the author and then uh, a, uh, a few weeks later we have a live chat with somebody else and have people sending in their views about it. So it's still a kind of literary conversation. So it still means that if I want to get books coming in, I can still get the rivers of books before, you know, to select <laughs> things from, because I miss that, yeah. of course. But look, here we, here we are in this little studio, and I come here every day that I can. And I was in Auckland the week before last, I think, and then Sydney last week and the week before, writing writers' festivals and um, doing um, a lot of publicity and talking about it, this book, and then coming back here quietly, working on the next one. And it is a different experience. It's um, it's solitary. It's sometimes difficult if you're raking things over in your head and you haven't quite worked out how to say something or what you think about something. Or and it's uh, it's a it's a non-fiction uh, book, so it's needed quite a bit of research. I mean, I don't know what they, what's going on with these writers. They don't seem to keep office hours, all the other writers around me. I mean, some of them have kids and, and kids get sick in, in winter, but I've noticed that they sort of, sometimes they don't turn up till about one o'clock in the afternoon. Oh, right. And I'm ready to go at about two or three because it's been enough, really. So I go and pick up my grandchildren from kinder and school and hang out with them a bit or, you know, do some cooking and they will come over for dinner. So the writer's day is... Is sort of um, worked 
for me it's sort of on that basis mm. that I try and go to the gym first thing in the morning, come here, spend some hours by myself, drive myself nuts and then go. <laughs> it sounds like you've got a, a good routine. So it works for you having a separate space for mm. your writing as opposed to doing it at home yeah. where there'll be distractions. Well, you know, I live in an apartment and there's not much room between, you know, there's the bedroom and the lounge room and in my lounge room we've got, my, my desk is set up there and books around me. But it's like a few steps from the bedroom, so you have to kind of go out first, <laughs> at least. So I go to the gym, I come back, and then I, I, until I rented this place, I was working at home. But, you know, there's the washing to do, you put the washing on. Making dinner, you could make it early, have things bubbling on the stove. Start making a big banquet. Well, you know, there's all sorts of things. <laughs> Procrastination central, Yeah, that's basically. right, because if you haven't got, you know, if you... Then when you're here, you go, I'm paying rent on this room. I'm so get my money's I've worth. I've got to start working here. <laughs> when I first came in here, um, uh, Iola Matthews, who's um, like, she's the sort of writer in residence here, and she's sort of responsible for getting the room, renting the rooms out and making sure everything works and stuff. And when I came here first, I sort of said to her downstairs, oh, you've got a kitchen downstairs. Oh, and I thought... Oh, I know what I can do. I can bring my vegetables here and I can put them on and I can cook. And she just said, you're not bringing vegetables here. You are definitely not doing that. So I thought, well, why am I just duplicating this? I really. So when I got here, I thought, I don't know whether I, you know, I don't think I'll need it. I don't think I need it to, to stay. I'd leave my door open so that all the other writers, when they came in, they would have to engage with me and we would sort of, shoot the breeze because I was used to working in a big organization yeah. open plan lots of journalists lots of um, lots of uh, you know adrenaline and that was difficult to sort of calm down and turn it down a bit yeah the solitary nature of, of writing it can can take a bit of getting used to it does it, it, I think it does especially if you're not used to it and now I just think look and sometimes enough is enough I mean, you need to give it a go. But if you're finding you're mucking around all day, and but sometimes you, I mean, when you when you're a writer and you've got to run your your business, right? You have to do all your emails and you have to send invoices for various things. Yeah. And there's a lot of administrative stuff that you have to do as well. So trying to sort of parcel that bit into a time when you don't feel like writing, so we'll do that then. Yeah, exactly. But, but sometimes you just have to sort of get the mood take over and mm. be in the mood and even if you haven't done very much you can actually have some thinking mm. I think you have to you have to remember that thinking going for a walk doing going shopping you're actually thinking about your work mm. and that's actually counts counts as work mm. you just don't always have a lot to show for it no that's right <laughs> and people think that you're just walking around and doing your shopping but they don't know what you're thinking no about. No, that's very true, very true. So you're enjoying the writing life, though, by the sounds of it. I appreciate the writing life. I appreciate not having to go in and be distracted by other people's work, mm. even though it was very nourishing for me. I appreciate not being in a big organisation and the politics of a big organisation, mm. even though I loved being at the ABC for all those years. And I was on the board for four years. I was the staff elected director. I was um, voted twice, two two-year terms. So I've seen the organisation from the top and from the bottom. Mm. Um, it's a very valuable organisation. It's got its faults. But um, 
Now, I'm not in an organisation. I am my own organisation. You are CEO. Like I am CEO and cleaner of Coval <laughs> <Cobble> Enterprises. <laughs> are there any books that you've ever had to admit defeat on? Many. I, I said to you that I, I was trying to sort of get a, a literary education or get, get a, a sort of a, a more rounded education. So I knew that there were things like the Icelandic sagas or... Arabian Nights, I mean, these classics of literature that I really needed to read. So um, I would buy those over the summer or they would come into the office and I would say, okay, well, I really need to know about this. The Icelandic sagas, you know, a lot of it's about disputes over property and women and land. And getting your head cut off. Going going to the court, the the thing, it's thing is something anyway. (laughs) And go, and then getting some sort of dispute resolved, and then, but often being the subject or of an axe being wielded at you, or you wielding an axe at someone else, and then they're all sort of called the same thing, as you know. And you've been to Iceland, all that thing about Eg, Egbert's daughter and Egbert's son, and Magnus Magnuson, Magnus Magnuson, and they're all, but they've all got they repeat their names repeat down mm. down in history. And they're all sort of Egelbert's son and Edward's son and Egel's son. And, and so you think, oh, I'm going to give up with this too. And then with the Arabian Nights, well, you know, the nested story. I can understand that Scheherazade was trying to preserve her life and she'd tell the sultan the story and she'd break off halfway through so she was able to spend another night and in the morning she'd tell the story again. But then she, it'll go into another story and... And then the same thing would happen. But I just thought, I haven't got the patience for all this. Now I get it. I get it after 30 pages. Do I have to read the rest? And the answer is no, you don't. Of all the writers that you interviewed on the book show over the years, do any stand out in your memory? Oh, lots of them stand out in my memory. Every, every time you meet somebody and you interview them, it's a different experience. Um, and you learn something and... I mean, I, I did a book before this one called Speaking Volumes, um, Conversations with Remarkable Writers, and I think about 29 of those conversations I republished and, um, because I, you know, they were, were very well-known writers and I um, thought that they would be of interest to people. And that's just been published, just been translated into Chinese. In fact, one of the things I was doing this morning was sending a publicity shot to China because... Oh, wow. That's been... And then the Portuguese have just published... Not the Portuguese, the Brazilians have just published the Portuguese version of that collection of interviews. Oh, wow. So I've just done an interview with someone in in, uh, in Brazil. So those interviews were memorable for me and will be a, a source of sort of reference source, I suppose, for people in other languages who are interested in writers in English. So... Um, they're, yeah, they're staying with me. Hmm. Was there any? Uh, is there any writer that has influenced uh, you as a writer? Because I understand that you have written a, a, a novel as as well as all your non-fiction. Uh, are you planning to write any more fiction, um, or is that a closely guarded secret no, no, of no, Cobble Enterprises? No, no, Cobble <laughs> Enterprises. I never say never. At the moment, I've just got much more appetite for non-fiction because I. Th- think that um, you still need imagination to write non-fiction mm. and you still you need a, a literary bent and you need to play with language and I'm, I'm just interested in 
non-fiction at the moment. I wouldn't say I've ne- I haven't got a novel in mind. Sometimes I come across something in research and I something that you can't know, and then I sort of try and imagine what the story might be, and then I think, oh, that sort of thing is for a story or a novel at some stage. Mm. You, know, you can see if you have to project too much onto it, it's really not for non-fiction, I suppose, other than thinking about what it means not to know something. Hmm. So when I say, well, writers, in non-fiction, I've written about Richard Kapuczynski, the Polish journalist who uh, wrote a whole series of interesting books that came out of his time as a foreign correspondent um, for the Polish um, sort of information services. He wrote quite a lot uh, about his time in Africa, covering various wars in Africa. And people like um, Joseph Roth, who was also a journalist who was publishing in Germany between the wars, who um, just a little book of um, translations of these small pieces he called Feuilletons, um, like little pages that were part of the literary pages of those German newspapers um, in the 20s. And uh, he would just go and write a page and a half or something of on looking at a new escalator, a new fangled escalator in a department store in Berlin, or he would look at um, you know at the train, the new train station, or he would go to a refugee home from for refugees in the east coming in, um, and he would and one one line was something like civil servants should come here to learn what love is or to learn about love. And I looked at that and I thought, you know, wouldn't it be wonderful if that was in a, a newspaper that you read now? I mean, you don't get that sort of writing. Mm. Where would love and civil servants be combined if not some, somewhere in those times by that sort of writer? Mm. So I, those sorts of writers, I would love to think that I'm, uh, they influence if not my style of writing, but the, my sensibility, I suppose. Mm. And the meaning you try to get across in your own work, yeah, I suppose. That, that you can explain anything, really. And, and you, you use the methods of literature, of, of character and storytelling, for explaining the world. And, you, and it works just as well in a novel as it does in, in a piece of non-fiction. Mm. You seem to be very interested in travel writing as well. Well, um, I travelled a lot as a journalist and that was, you know, of course, a way of getting away. I mean, I had my kids very early, so I spent all my 20s with little children in my 30s. So it wasn't until I was in my 40s that I really started to travel at all. So I was, you know, it was a way of reading travel writers to to make those journeys before I actually did them. Mm, living vicariously. Mm. Yeah, mm. I did a lot of that before I actually <laughs> went to the UK. I remember uh, 2005, I think all I read was Lonely Planet books and um, travel memoirs. Mm. Please tell us a bit about Roger Deakin. Roger Deakin was a writer that I met in Edinburgh um, one year at the Writers' Festival. And in fact, Faith Liddell, who was the festival director introduced me to Roger. He, she, she said, oh, do you know Roger? And Roger was just about to catch a train back to London. And, and she said, Ramona's from Australia. And he said, oh, do you know my friend Tony Barrell? And I said, yes, I do. Because <laughs> he used to work at the ABC too in Sydney. And then he sort of, you know, ships in the night and we passed. And then he went back to um, London. 
And then Tony rang me and said, oh, look, you know, my friend Roger has sent me a book for you to look at because this was what the book that he was with, he was talking about in, in Edinburgh. So I read his book called Waterlogged and it's a wonderful travel memoir of having a broken heart and deciding to uh, do something about it by swimming. This is, he was a very eccentric Englishman. Um, so Roger decided to swim his way out of it. So he started in his moat in Suffolk and then he went to every tarn and, and, um, and waterway and beach and river and um, municipal pool and all kinds of places that he could swim all around Britain. And every, you know, he went places and he wrote about nature and he wrote about his um, getting over this heartbreak and all of the, and about swimming and about the wonderment of being in water and what it, what it meant. And it was such a lovely thing. I interviewed him about it. He went into the BBC and I did it from Australia. And then he said, oh, um, I was thinking of coming to Australia. And I said, and I said, well, you must go to Central Australia. And he said, well, I don't really know anything about Central Australia. And I said, oh, I'll take you. So <laughs> I didn't know this man at all. So anyway, he arrived in Australia. We met properly. We had lunch. And then I said, well, what do you think? Do you think we could spend three weeks in Central Australia together? And he said, well, I'm game if you are. And I said, <laughs> all right then. So we went off, you know, just as friends to Central Australia. We hired a car and we went all around the centre. And he was making notes. And it was funny because he was such an Englishman. He was such a mixture of Monty Python and, and a, a sort of rover scout of some sort. <laughs> and he would set up our swags in sort of separate parts of the camp and you know, cover, cover it with mosquito netting and all kinds, all kinds of funny things. And He didn't approve of your method of My fire building method, building. which was stupid because actually I was taught how to do it by Pitchinjarra Aboriginal people because I'd been in Central Australia doing some work before that. And I was showing him how to make a fire, which was to get a log and um, you know, point it at the direction the wind was coming from. This is for, at the night, for night time. So the wind's always going to come in that direction and it will burn down the log. And you don't have to do anything much about it. You just have to sort of position yourself. Well, he was from a different kind of fire-making tradition, which was a Boy Scout tradition, <laughs> which was different because it was England and didn't have this prevailing wind all night like you do in the desert. So it kept going out and <laughs> he finally agreed that my method was better. But it was a hard, hard go. And then he would say, I would go, oh, look at those budgerigars in that tree and point. And he'd go, he'd say, don't do pointed budgerigars because, you know, you never pointed birds. I said, really, why not? Oh, because, they, you know, they see you and they fly away. If you want to have a look at a bird, you mustn't point. I said, well, what do you, what do you want me to say? And he said, you've got to say, and he, he spoke out of the side of his mouth, Budgerigars at three o'clock. <laughs> so I went, all right, whatever. So it does <laughs> sound like something out of Monty <laughs> Very memorable moment in your and career. He, he wrote about it actually in his, his book that he, uh, his last book called Wildwood, which was published before he died. He died of brain tumours um, when he was in his early 60s. So it was sad. And he was a late developer too. Um, he had worked in the film industry and in, in uh, advertising for uh, most of his life. Mm.
It sounds like it was a very memorable moment of it your was, career. It was, a, it was a nice friendship. And, um, and then I saw him every so often if it, when I went over to Edinburgh to do interviews at the festival there and record things. I'd drop by in London and, or I'd go, I'd go up with him to, to Suffolk and he had this fantastic old um, uh, 16th century farmhouse there and his moat and his friends. So it was a nice friendship. Sometimes you know, this sort of job can lead you to interesting places that you would never have... You know, unless you've got a microphone and a reason to ask questions, <laughs> you never get in those places and never get access to those people. And it's a great thing. I heartily recommend it, as I'm sure you're finding out yourself. <laughs> well, you've just got to be bold. And, you do. And you just have to ask. You just have to ask. And look, yeah. and what could, what's the worst that can happen? They People say no. can say no. Yeah. And you can think, okay, who's next? Who's still, next on the list? Hmm, exactly. You still be in the same situation. Yeah. And if they say yes, well, here I am sitting in a National Trust house in Melbourne talking to you. <laughs> Ramona Koval, thank you very much for being my guest on Bookends today. Uh, it's been a complete pleasure. Thank you very much for asking me and in coming into to this funny little room in this funny little house. And drinking mountain tea. Greek mountain Greek tea. Greek mountain tea. We'll put a link on the website. Thank you, Ramona. Thank you.